Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smoridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 10, where we'll be discussing lines 38 to 41 on the Zornhau. So, what have you been up to in the last week, Johanna? Mm, nothing really HEMA-related. I've been spending a lot of time uh, outside in the field. Um, we're using the heat, the summer heat, to make um, hay for our horses for the winter. I've been on the field all day, and I'm pretty tired, and I didn't have time to do anything HEMA-related. Oh, wait, um, I just bought two copies of Steve's new translation book, so that's something HEMA-related, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's all sadly okay uh i'll ask steve so steve what have you been up to <laughs> well i released my book as johanna just mentioned so by the time you're hearing this it will have been released for probably three weeks so you can go and get it if you want or not if you don't want that's fine too but more importantly I've been uh I've been interested in like making charts lately so I've been like making a lot of hema related charts just for fun and I made one on uh parrying and I made one on um the 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 big one that I made was about cutting with a passing step and like different timings and that one yep. took me a really long time so I posted it on the hema subreddit and it got mostly positive feedback but it is funny that a lot of people will die on the hill of you have to cut before you step it's really interesting to me that so many people are willing to die on that hill so the the hema subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash wma so it's a western martial arts reddit not a historical european martial arts reddit Right. So that's interesting. So they're not going to die on the hill if you have to step while you cut? They mean right. while you cut. Like, you have to start the cut at the beginning of the step. Oh. Um, okay, that sounds yeah. more like what I expect people to say. I, I mean, as general advice, out of distance, that's normally what I'd recommend, but I'm pretty sure it's physically possible to step and then cut. The great thing about general advice is there are specific cases where it's just not true. But anyway, so, so that was just one chart. And then you've had some others to do with timing, isn't it? Yeah, I did one on uh, four and knock. I did one on um, indecent fooling, and they're all kind of like theory mixed with wild theory. So <laughs> it's just something for fun that I've been doing. Okay, uh, Michael Chidester, what have you been up to in the last week? I only bought one copy of Steve's book today, but. Apart from that, I that's okay. I forgive you. I spent the past week updating and cleaning up and reformatting the article on Giacomo di Grassi, who is the shaping influence in the way we talk about HEMA that no one talks about. In that his book was available in English in the seventies, and so everybody who was doing HEMA in the eighties and nineties read it, and it's longer than Saviolo and longer and easier to read than silver, so it was the most popular one. So you can see echoes of Degrassi's terminology in HEMA discourse today. For example, anytime we ever des des describe a guard as a ward, 
that's Degrassi shining through because no other book or dictionary really supports that very strongly. It's like the 10th definition, but we all use it because Degrassi used it. He also invented the term case of rapiers, um, which comes up a lot in discussions of two sorts. Um, well, and when I say he, I mean his English translator because his Italian doesn't have any weird terminology. It's pretty normal. Uh, yes, Kendra corrects me. A translator who Degrassi did not hire or maybe even know about but an English guy who translated it for English publication in 1594. So I was working on that, and that turned out pretty nice. And that was basically my whole week because I dramatically underestimated how long it would take. Hmm. I thought it would be like a one-day project. Now, I thought Word... a 200-page book. What? I thought Word came from I-33. Does that uh, no, Custodia is in 133, which Jeffrey Forging translates as Ward because, he's really, because he was really into Degrassi. Huh. If you look at, if you look, we, we, Kendra actually looked in some Latin dictionaries earlier when I was talking about this and found that there are some weird word derivations that are similar to Ward down at the bottom of the definition lists, but none of the three dictionaries she consulted actually has it as a primary meaning of custodia. So how would you translate custodia? Custodia means guard. I mean, it means a, like... It means a custodian like, is a guard, right? Yeah, it's a guard. It's the guard post. It's the soldiers who stand guard. Um, it's a lot of similar military terminology. And then eventually you can get, I think, ward as a verb-like thing shows up towards the bottom of the list. Like to ward as in to protect. Oh, and right? ward as a district shows up, right? Like a town will be divided into wards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it, it's a word that Degrassi's English translator used a lot, and it entered our, our, our dialect that way. Interesting piece of HEMA history right there. Yeah. Also, Degrassi in one place uses the word device to mean fencing trick or technique, and that's where the translation of Stuck as device comes from, which is in a lot of Jeffrey Forging's translations. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. But, you know, it's also a nice little book. It covers a lot of weapons. It has a sweet one-handed thrust with a, with a spadona or greatsword. T, what have you been up to in the last week? Um, not that much email related. I built myself a couple of new foils, uh, like the modern electric ones, uh, for when we finally get back to fencing. And I've also started writing short articles on pedagogy and teaching for HEMA instructors. They're getting posted on HEMA World Domination as they go up, so there's a couple there as we record, and by the time this episode goes out, there'll probably be four or five, I think. Uh, things about how to structure classes or teach skills effectively and so on, which are Material that sometimes can be a bit, a bit hard to come by for human instructors who might be self-taught. Uh, so, check that out if you're interested in teaching stuff. And that's pretty much it. Cool. As for myself, I on on the research front, I went on a bit of a weird tangent looking into Gisliero, which is a an Italian a rapier manuscript. No, it's not a manuscript. It's a printed book. Um, that I first came across some years ago with some scans. I thought there were some more beautiful, some better quality scans out there and did a bit of uh, bit of hunting on that, found out somebody else is transcribing and translating it, which makes it all a lot easier. On a worse note, though, I was fencing on Thursday and there was an accident. There was a PPE failure. Uh, somebody's mask um, didn't stand up to a blow, and the, fortunately they're all right. A couple of stitches, 
But um, yeah, it's a big shock, a big eye opener. Um, the classic sort of do a thrust and cut round to the other side and got the guy in the temple. So back to the fencing club after we finish recording this and yeah, make sure that the guy's okay. Yeah, which is less good. So um, so yeah, that's the the situation my end fencing wise. Yeah, the on pool masks bit soft. Warehouse from the left, bit hard, sucks. Um, all right. On a more positive note, let's get back on to the 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 reason that we're all here, which is looking at the text. So, Johanna, would you be able to give me lines? I believe it's thirty-eight to forty-one in the original German. Yep. Die vier Blusen zu brechen. Willst du dich rechten, die vier Blus künstlich brechen? Oben du blier, nieden recht mutier. Ich sag für wahr, sich schützt kein Mann an Fahr. Hast du vernommen, zu Schlag mag er klein kommen. Brilliant, thank you. And Steve, could you give us Harry's translation? Redeem yourself by taking four openings by their breakings. To above you redouble, mutate low without trouble. Now let me assure, no defense is for sure. And if this is well known, barely he'll come to blows. Brilliant, thank you. So, what? How does the gloss expand on this? This introduces one of the most common techniques in the gloss, anyways, if not in our fencing. Two of the most common techniques of duplicating and mutating, or redoubling and mutating, as he says. I'm not sure. I'd say uh, two. Doubling is definitely very common, but mutating is mentioned. I think no other points anywhere in the gloss. By uh, name. It's mentioned one other time. It's in the Tverhel. You're right. Doubling, it usually says doubling and other plays, which may or may not mean mutating. Okay, so so just to get the, the gross actions down, so both duplering, doubling, and mutating, mutating, are ways to, what do we say, continue on attacking after you've been parried? Yeah, so they're actions on the sword after a bind. Um... Uh, doubling is essentially crossing or uncrossing your arms to strike behind their sword, um, and you do it against strength or against the strong of the sword. And then mutaren is uh, taking your sword over theirs and dropping the point low to thrust uh, into a lower opening, which you typically do against the weakness of their sword or against we- uh, against softness. Okay, so these uh, aren't leaving the bind; they're staying in the bind, but they're also not strong against that bind, which are the two options that we saw last week. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, people often talk about duplering in particular as being a kind of yielding technique, which isn't really explicit in the gloss, but there is an idea that this is a thing you do when they're strong, so maybe it's a bit like yielding. I mostly see it as just going straight for the opening and not worrying about it. Cool. But yeah, these are the basic options it seems to give against strength and weakness in a well, what do we say about the bind? Because there's an interesting thing that starts off where it says, this is when someone earnestly strikes at you, and he never explains what that means. Or, and that phrase never appears elsewhere. The word earnest only appears in the Ansetzen. And in the shield offhand, at least one gloss? In the shield? I don't know. Uh, I'm double-checking. Continue. And in the common lessons where it says in earnest or in... Well, right. So it also appears once in a context that's not actually technical. Yes. And then it's all over the place in 3227A, but in the RDL and glosses, it's 
on you, it's very rare and hard to pin down. So I guess the surface level explanation would be that this is somebody who's seriously trying to injure you. Like, I guess, quote unquote, on the streets. How do we feel about that surface level definition? Uh, so, so just as a, as a footnote, T, you're right. It is in Danzig and Lev, and it's not in Ringek for the Shieldhound. It's a good, strange, and earnest technique. Yeah, I find it really interesting that Ringek also doesn't use earnest here in the four openings. Um, that's also only Danzig and Lev. Uh, Ringek just says that you have these ways to break the break the four openings. So he's cool. skipping that phrase a lot uh, in yeah. the few times it shows up. So do we have any opinions on what they mean by that, or is it just a um, is it just a mystery, or are we going to go with the uh, for the streets definition, which I don't really want to? But according to the real deadly longsword theory, it's it's this is, means this is for the RDL context, the street sword context. But I don't know that I believe that. I'll put in an alternative uh, interpretation, which would be that the they're striking directly at you. They're not doing uh, mayor flourish in front of your face. Yeah, I think that Edelson Winslow, when they put out a video about this, discussed the idea that Ernest might mean, especially because that isn't mentioned in the earlier place, the Zornhelm might mean they're coming closer. So they're trying to hit you with the edge instead of putting the point in front of you. And so there isn't space in turn for you to cut with the point directly in front of them. You end up in a slightly different bind, and Duplier and Mutier are more natural continuations. So in that case, it would mean that we're no longer talking about the Zornhau at all. Potentially. So we've abandoned that section. Well, we uh, mentioned last way, week that is, this is a new section already in terms yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I could believe that. So maybe it's just using earnest as a descriptor for when you come to a bind, period. It might also just be a way where he's saying if, you're, if someone's actually cutting at you and you bind, this is what happens. I, I really don't like the, the street defense theory either, but I, I stumbled over the, the phrase uh, du dich an rechen? So uh, if you want to take revenge on him, um, I stumbled over that phrase and I think it implies that it's, well, that it could mean like, um, yeah, like that he attacked you seriously or yeah in earnest and that you're supposed to, to, to fight back earnestly. As much as I don't like the uh, street defense, real deadly longsword theories. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think. Things... It... Sorry, go on. No, I just wanted to say that it implies as if uh, uh, your opponent did something that wasn't that was not cool, and you're supposed to take revenge on it. So maybe the real deadly longsword theory in street defense might have a point mm. here. But nah, I I don't like it. I'm gonna. I'm going to throw up a counterpoint to um, to the real deadly longsword with the, the revenge. I think that they use they use flower like so. For example, um, we were talking about the war and a couple like the krieg, which you know is a word for you know massive like two armies fighting each other. But obviously, that's not what's going on when you're sword fighting. Um, so taking revenge on somebody might not necessarily mean literally like, you know, being angry at them at somebody who's angry at you and like getting back at it. It might be like a figurative, um, you know, they struck at me, so now I'm going to punish them for it. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah, nice one. 
Cool. One of the um, the things I personally like about the idea that Ernest talks about a change in range or a change in distance is that it makes sense of ideas like why am I striking with the edge against their strength instead of trying to work the point in? And similarly, why if they're weak, why if I'm driving something against weakness, do I need to take my point down to a low opening instead of thrusting directly? If the distance is closer and they've been trying to hit with the edge, it's a lot harder to line up a thrust to an upper opening because there's just physically not really enough space. Um, but thrusting to a low opening then becomes much more possible and cutting behind the blade obviously takes less space than thrusting as well. So both of these kind of work naturally at a slightly closer range than ideas like shooting the point in does. So my question uh, on that interpretation has been, what does that ha how does that relate to the use of Ernest in Ansetzen, which is the only other time when it appears? What, do, what does this have in common with Ansetzen? So, and I guess the shield hub. The shield hub would also be shortened in that way, you could say. So it, yeah. it certainly can hit someone who's closer in. But well, hypothetically, it's far away. But in Ansetzen, it doesn't tell you that they're doing something earnest. It says that you're doing something earnest, i.e. you're really trying to stab them. Whereas here, what's happening is they're doing something earnestly, so they're really trying to cut you. They're trying to cut their edge directly into you, right? That could be the, the way to get out of that bind. Hmm. So it's a different earnest technique. Yeah, well, they're, they're both in a, like, they're both in whatever this hypothetical earnest context is where people are getting hit more, directly hit more. But one of them is they are earnestly cutting. So obviously their edge has to be able to actually hit you if that if that's the case. And that closes the distance slightly. Whereas with Ansets and you're earnestly doing something against them. So you're literally sticking them with the point of your sword and putting it on them. Yeah, I think that I, think that I like the idea that I think uh, Mike said earlier about how in this case, earnest means that you're not doing a preparatory action. You're going straight for a simple attack, which would also line up with the Shielhau and the Anzetsen. Because in both of those, you're aiming directly towards the person. You're not trying to do any kind of uh, preparatory mm -hmm. beat on the blade or you know disengage or anything like that. I'm just thinking of the, um, was it the Prague Fesh School rules? which are all safety points, and there was the one that you can't just walk up and hit them like a peasant, which uh, implies to me that if you did just walk up and hit somebody in the head, then that was bad juju. Oh, so you're thinking that Ernest, so because you wouldn't do simple attacks in effectual situation, simple attacks would be considered Ernest? Potentially. That's actually quite a nice yeah. hypothesis. I like that. Yeah, yeah so, so somebody's come up and they've just tried to hit you in the head rather than playing the the game that you're expecting. So you're like, oh, hang on a second here. All right, well. If you want to play that way, bash. Yeah, and now, yeah, and now you take revenge on them for doing that. I, I, <laughs> I think that's something um, that might back this theory up. So... Um, if you read on like the same sentence, it says, um, I'm, I'm looking at uh, sort of on dancing now, um, dass er sich an seinem Dank schlagen lassen muss. So it would be translated as, so that he must let himself be hit without, and now is the word Dank. And in the, in the I translate that as, um, he must allow himself to be struck against his will. Oh, yeah. It's it's a strange word. I've I um we use the word now to say um um thank so like thank you, but 
I, I, I saw the word Dank in, in some older works, uh, in Turnierbücher, so in tournament books, um, in old tournaments, and maybe, I, uh, as far as I remember, even Fechtschulen. So it, the, the name for, for, a, for a prize, so when someone wins the prize, yeah, that was called Dank. So it could mean something like that this is a factual situation and that he doesn't get the, the prize. He doesn't get the dunk. He um, tried to attack but you, like, but you're going to beat him, so you're going to win the prize. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Because the dunk is... I've only ever heard of dunk um, in that context um, when it's about prizes in tournaments in the, I don't know, 1500s, 1600s. Okay, so he comes he comes in and does a, a dishonorable cut, and so you take revenge on him and take away his prize. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. This is this is, a, this is quite the web. <laughs> Wild theory. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, maybe. I don't right. know. And, and on that uh, wild theory, <laughs> um, should we move <laughs> yeah. on? <laughs> because I've got no argument against that. That's way out of my area of expertise. And it's a sentence that a lot of translators have had trouble with. I think I've also read that he'll allow he must allow you to strike him without thinking. Uh, Christian has allow himself to be hit without his permission. Um, so it, it's stumped people in the past. Yeah, I've uh, thought of it the same way as like similar to Christian's translation. Something else I probably think it might be worth bringing out here is that um, there, one of the other inconsistencies between Ringek and Danzig Lev here is the idea of what you're doing, like what the specific stimulus for each action is here. Because DL talk about doing doubling against the strong and mutating against when they're weak on the sword, whereas Ringek doesn't actually bother with the second part of that. He just says, or, or you can do mutating to the other opening with no implication about the difference in their position or setup for that situation which i also find slightly interesting maybe it's just missing text or maybe it's like a deliberate difference in how the text is structured here there's also a slight difference between uh, danzig and lev danzig says um the dupe the duplerian with the strength of um sorry the duplerian against the strength of his sword and the transmutation or and the mutarian when he is weak at the sword whereas lev says uh, dupli- uh, Duplerin against the strength and um, Uterin against the weakness. So Lev is pretty clearly talking about the parts of the sword, but Donzig says... follows Lev here as well. Okay. But Donzig, it looks like, is saying um, he's weak at the sword, which is, to me, sounds like a slightly different wording, I guess. When we get to the text, it, I believe Muterian across the board says soft and not weak as well. So it's different again, unless we assume that soft and weak are the same. Ringek actually doesn't. That's also interesting. Ringek's yeah, taken away the cue at the beginning of Muterian. Yeah. Do the Muterian thusly when you bind him on the with the overcue or otherwise, then wind the short edge on his sword and drive up with the arms, blah, 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 blah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but before we get into the Duplerin and Muterinist techniques, the other interesting thing in this introduction is we come back to the idea that he cannot protect himself and cannot come to blows himself. Um, but that's, that, that text in the gloss is based on 40 and 41 in the verse, 
which is one of the few places where a verse is repeated um, because this shows up also in the Shrek Fenster. I say to you truthfully, no one protects himself without danger and so on. Um, sort of suggesting that these two sections go together. And possibly that the entire Zornhaus section goes along with the entire Shrek Fenster. Yeah. Which is borne out in the te techniques that are underneath each one. But this is sort of a, a technical connection in the title itself. Yeah, this is also the final lines of, well, unless you consider uh, the four openings their own section, these are the final lines of the Zornhaus section before we get into the crump. Mm -hmm. So we're closing out with the same couplets as they close out with in the Sprechfenster. Right, and both Zorn and the Sprechfenster, and assuming that they're one section, um, end with the Duplarin and... Spreck doesn't have Mutarin, it's just other techniques, but sort of that's the final point in both of them because they're both sort of long point plays. Yeah. Cool. So, Steve, do you think that this gives you um, a tactical framework to decide uh, when you're going to choose between doing a Duplerin or a Mutarin with the hardness and the softness? Yeah, basically, I think that this is these two techniques are kind of meant to be the go-tos or okay so this this isn't necessarily what i 100% think but i've been i've had this idea when i was thinking about it that these should be like your go-tos in any bind situation so if you bind and they're strong at the sword uh bind with their strength uh, hard at the sword, whatever you know, um, whatever way you want to say it, then you go straight to uh, Duplerin. And if they're uh, weak at the sword, they bind with their weakness, um, or they're soft at the sword, you go straight to Mutirin. And what that really boils down to when you think about it is you're either winding to the left or you're winding to the right. And that's kind of similar to like what we see in the Zornhaus setup, like the, the follow-ups to the Zornhaus. Oh, and I, I guess I should mention that the other uh, thing you can do is cut around, which is what you do if, you know, they you, you can't do anything else. So like they've pushed you to the side, they obviously, like you obviously can't do anything else, so you, you cut around. But that's like, that's a separate thing. After you hook their blade with your cross. Sure, yeah. But yeah, um, winding left and winding right. I, I guess the, you know, the default for the the Zornhau is shooting straight in. In which case, if you can do that, then there's no reason to really uh, wind to either side. But yeah. if you can imagine like a situation where you're doing a Zornhau, and you have their strong, or sorry, you you have good. Like you're you're shooting the point in, in the correct way, and you're kind of on their weak, and they try to rise up into ox. What that's going to end up looking looking like is the final point of the mutiran, because you're just going to be on top of their the weak of their sword. So I don't know. And um, and for me, I think something that came up in the the conversation leading up to this was that. Every time that the 
let me get this right, Michael. Correct me when I'm wrong. Every time that the Mutiran play is illustrated, the guy doing the parrying is in Ox. Uh, he's typically in what we would call a hanging point position, but if we're going to go with the four guard framework, it would be Ox. Usually his hands are high and his point is hanging low. Uh, although, obviously, the term hanging point doesn't appear anywhere in the glosses. And when they say hanging, they mean something slightly different. Well, they say they do say hang your point a couple times, including in the in the Mutiran, I believe. Hang your point to yeah. him. So the idea of the hanging point guard or parry comes from, I believe, Parnfeint is the first one to name it that. So 16th century, and Meyer does it as well. Um, but yeah, but that position that we all have practiced at some point in HEMA, where you yeah. intercept, your, where you raise your hands, but keep your point low as a defense is what seems to be illustrated all the time. Cool. There's one picture in Goliath that's not quite the same because the point is about shoulder height and the hands are overhead, so it's a much shallower hanging point. Um, yeah. And elsewhere in Goliath and, and in other manuals, they typically have the point much further down. Okay, because I, I think my main point was that um, certainly when I learned this, when I were a lad, it was practicing against somebody who was parrying using what we'd call a a crown position, cron, which is not cron. That's an argument for another time, but a kind of a we'll get there sword vertical in front of the chest type parry, point up, posta de corona, um, which isn't what the sources indicate so much, and that probably leads us into a question of how often do these two techniques come up in sparring? Uh, T, do you want to take that one? Um, one thing I was going to very quickly say, um, although I just realized I'd been on mute when I was trying to talk, um, is that the, uh, trying to do Mutaren, especially against a high point kind of position, makes it very, very difficult to get to the weak of their sword. If you read any of the glosses, if you're trying to work by any of the glosses which talk about that, you know, physically taking control of the blade when they refuse the weak up high is pretty much impossible. Personally, I find Duplarin inspiring is pretty rare. Um, Mutir and I set up a lot. Um, I don't normally enter it in the fully canonical way, but the um, the simplest way to begin it that I found is with a shield. Because if you started from a shield-type action, but you've got your point a bit wide or they've stepped a bit differently than you were expecting or something, you're already over their sword with your short edge and like on their weak. And from those three positions, from those three points, it's very easy to continue to mutate and thrust down low instead of to... Cut, continue by cutting somewhere else uh, or bringing the point back online in some other way. I remember, in fact, doing this once to Mike Smallridge the very first time we ever fenced. I think I have it on video. Uh, but that was my, that's my main thought. Uh, I think I see Duplirin a lot less often than Mutirin, and I suspect that's partly because Mutirin takes so much control of the blade it feels safer, whereas Duplirin is more dependent on timing uh, and pressure. And distance. Yes, but even in close distance, people prefer to cut around or something, whereas Duplarin, because it feels like there's no sword between you and their sword, gets feels more nervous. But with Mutarin, because you're taking their blade uh, so directly, it's easier to feel like you're safely controlling them uh, while you're trying to deliver your touch. I'm going to offer um, an alternate experience that I've, that I've experienced as far as these two go, and say that Duplirin comes up way more than Mutirin, um, from from what I've seen. I feel like Mutirin, I think, most often comes up 
when it's two people who are fighting each other and they're not first day beginners, but maybe have like a year or so of experience and are starting to figure out that going into Ox is usually a good idea. So they end up going into Ox all the time and then they both go into Ox and somebody does a Muterian and it looks very pretty and awesome. And we all clap. Mm-hmm. And it is good. It's 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 a good move. But then once you start getting punished for going to Ox all the time, which a, a common punishment for that is like as soon as somebody so you know someone's going to Ox, so as soon as they do, you come off their blade and just smack them on the side of the hands. So then they get discouraged from going to Ox all the time and only do it sparingly. So uh, Mutirin becomes less common. Duplarin, on the other hand, we don't see that too often unless it's somebody who trains it all the time, like they do at the uh, Philly Common Fencers Guild. They, like, those guys get Duplarin way more than anybody else I've ever seen um, because they're always training it. So. Um, Aren't they Vadi guys down there? Right. So, the, so the, I mean, they wouldn't call it Mutirin, they'd call it uh, Mezzo Tempo. Yeah, because I was thinking the guy in the UK I can think of who does something like Duplier and the most often is also a Vadi guy. Right, yeah. But whatever the reason, they train it all the time, so they're good at it and they do it. My opinion on Duplierin is if we... So this is just a hypothesis. Um, obviously, I, I haven't tested it out yet, but my... My hypothesis is that if we feverishly train punishments against cutting around, um, which would be mostly uh, slicing, so nachreisen and, and slicing, then we'll see the usage of duplerin um, go way up because it kind of, if you're trying to, if you feel like you're going to get punished for cutting around, then you're a lot more likely to do duplerin. And so the the big the big risk for Duplarin is since your sword is between their sword and their head, that means their sword is like on your side of your sword. So they could just come off the bind and and like smack you in the head or slice you or something. So that's that's the big hang up behind like just not just doing Duplarin all the time no matter what. Same with like an outside winding. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely I agree with the idea that training it more and training punishing cutting around more is the way to see more duplerin in fencing. Yeah, cutting around is is too high percentage right now. There's no reason to do duplerin really, because you'll probably like hit the person just by cutting around. Exactly. Yeah, and if somebody's duplerining against you, you might well you won't recognize it probably, but your cut round will still land. That's still ahead. That's still max points. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what they do. Uh, very Nordic. <laughs> yeah. So interestingly, um, Goliath seems to illustrate that the counter that the person is doing to Duplarin is exactly the sort of hanging parry that would result in a open up for a Muterin, which is also how Hans Madel describes the techniques that the Duplarin should feed into the Muterin if your opponent parries it. Um, which is also not something that we see very much in our fencing, but maybe something that would arise given the right situation where 
if you feel your sword, a sword coming in towards your face, then raising your hands and setting it aside with that sort of weak parry is a way you can deal with it that isn't suicidal. Well, it's pretty yeah. much the actually the only way you can deal with it from the described setups to do clearing, because you have both blades together, so your hands are low, probably, and the sword is coming directly towards your face, and to stop it, you need to get your strong in the way somehow, so you have to pick your hands up and put your strong in the way. Yep, and you, you, push, you push it upwards. To do that, you have to lift your hands up, and leaving your point down is quicker and easier than trying to carry the whole thing, because that way you can get your sword in front of theirs by kind of curving it around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's close yeah. to the only actual parrying action that works against that that position. Kron uh, like parry works too, just pushing straight up. You have but to then... lift a lot higher though, because you have to get it high enough. It's completely over your head. Right, whereas you can set it to the side. Yeah. Well, well, you do. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. <laughs> um, but with a um, with a hanging style parry, you basically just need to get your hands in front of your face, and the the line they're trying to cut on stops existing. Right. So this could also be a case of we would see Mutiran more if we saw Duclaren more, and people were training it. I don't know. That's possible. It, it, I guess I'll have to wait and see if that ever happens. Potentially. Yeah. Like I say, the setup I found most useful for Mutiran is to do a shield howl and have them try to do a slightly crappy upset zone against him, or something like that. Which actually yeah. is a similar setup to um, I, I just wanted to add real quick that I feel that the most the, the most useful use for Duplerin that I've found is behind somebody's parry when they expect me to cut to the other side. So if, like, say you're doing, like, it's Varicopter, um, and they're, par- like, they're just using straight parries, like, straight up and down parries, um, you just throw in a Duplerin, and they're, they move to parry to the other side, but you stay on the same side of their blade, so you hit. And that can, you know... As as a mix up to its varicopter, I feel like that's the probably the most useful way to use it right now. Cool. Which that that is attested to later in the in the um, sphere house section as a use. Although the varicopter isn't. Well, that's that's we'll, arguable. We'll get there. It's a toilet copter. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, I think we'll wrap up in a second. But just before we do. Maya, who is not the, the subject of this podcast, but we talk about him anyway, generalizes Duplerin and Mutirin to be any kind of repetition or changing of a wounder. Does that make sense in the context of RDLN? Now, when you Chittister? say Maya, you mean Joachim Meyer, right? Yes, I no. just can't pronounce German. Sure, that's fair. I hear people talk that way a lot when they're describing techniques. I'm, I don't... The, the words are used so seldomly in the text that it's hard to say, but I don't think that they necessarily contextualize them that way, or, think, or I don't think there's justification for that in, our, in the gloss. Uh, but I also don't, couldn't argue coherently that it's wrong. So, cool. Um, has anybody got anything else that they want to bring up? Before I just agree up? with Mike very quickly that that's something which is kind of underdetermined from the information in RDL. Um, you could definitely make that argument, but there isn't the detail to support it, if that makes sense. There's nothing contradicting it, but... So I have one final question for the group. Sorry, T, did I cut you off? No, it's fine. I'm done. Okay. Which is, Duplerin and Mutirin aren't exactly the same as the windings we get later on, especially in the 24 windings, 
how do you how would you decide whether to do these techniques or do a winding? Or do you think these are two of the 24 windings? Well, I'm pretty basic, and I consider winding to just to be any turn of the sword. So making the 24 windings is like, okay, well, if I'm doing a, a duplet, all I'm doing is winding down to plow, normally on my right, because I'm extremely basic. If I'm doing a, a mute here and all that I'm doing is flowing up into ox on my left normally, so that's a winding. So for me, they're subsets of winding, maybe not the platonic perfect form of winding. I think they're pretty perfect forms of winding, especially the duplarian. I think it's just a, um, a high winding that is done with a hue or a slice rather than a stab. I mean, it certainly occurred to me that, that in a discussion yesterday that the Bishtek Hervider technique that was postulated based on Lev is very similar to a duplarian in movement. Um, and it could be just be a distance thing of which one happens based on yeah. your same movement. Distance was something I was going to bring up as well, um, especially with Mutaren. In general, thrusting to a low opening like that is a way to deliver a touch of the point when you are physically closer. If you're close enough to thrust down to the thigh um, or thrust down to a low opening in general. Um, some of these specify thigh, don't they? No. No, okay. Um, but generally thrust down to a low opening, like the hip or the thigh or something. Then I think I think you get the thigh from the uh, Goliath picture. The Goliath picture, yeah, there we go. Um, but if you're that close, then you're too close to bring the point online at a wider range. And similarly, if you're close enough to cut behind the blade and hit with the edge, you're too close to thrust behind the blade instead. You'd need to retract your arm significantly to thrust, and that would change the angle of your engagement with their blade and potentially take away the opening you're trying to reach. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's a matter of what kind of touch you want to make and what distance you're at about whether you're going to go for these or go for a different winding action. I don't think those are conscious decisions that you make when you're fencing, though. Because that's a very tight... Like Those two dis distances are very tight. And, like, it's also very fluid at that point, whether you're at one distance or another. And it depends heavily on how your opponent is stepping. Yeah. So but a similar movement pattern will take you to kind of, like, if you bring your sword up and uh, put your short edge on their sword, for example, if they're further away, you'll be able to be lined up for a thrust in the right, high line. Exactly. But if they're yeah. closer in, you're naturally going to need to continue to the low line to make that touch land. So and similarly, you... if I cross my arms and go behind their sword, and I'm closer in, I'm going to hit with the edge. And if I'm further, they're further away, I'm going to be able to chase him with the point again very right. naturally. They flow into each other. So you wind your arms up, or I guess rise with your arms, and then just uh, take whatever they give you. Yeah. Um, something else I wanted to mention very quickly before we moved on here is the targeting for Duplerin in particular, where Duplerin talks about a couple of different places you can target in Ringic. He says that you can strike through the maw or uh, strike with the play onto the head. And I find the pair of targets an interesting variation. Doesn't it just give you the exposure you should aim for? Well, so... <laughs> It's explicitly, sort of, yes, but it's explicitly listing two different exposures here. It says, you know, if he displaces with strength, then Indes, shove your pommel under your arm with the left hand and strike him through the maw with crossed hands on the sword behind his sword's blade, or strike him with the play upon the head. So that's kind of 
that's implying these are two different-ish things. Yeah, and and later on, there's examples of the Duplerian where we slice through the mouth, and one in only in Danzig where we strike to, I believe, below the face. Yeah, it might just be a matter of relative heights or a matter of the line you want to cut in on, where if you cut flatter, uh, you're going to cut more down towards the mouth and jaw area. And if you cut more yeah. vertically, you're going to come higher up onto kind of striking onto the head, where it might be a choice you can make based on the exact context of the fencing you're doing. Uh, Le Kuchner has a few examples of techniques where you do the same setup, but you pick the exact finishing target based on whether it's a serious fight or a factual fight or just something else. Um, so perhaps you could go, if I really hate you, I'm going to hit you in the mouth. But if I'm just trying to win the point in the factual, I'm going to hit you right on the top of the head. And I'm going to use the same setup for either of them. Yeah, I'm just not sure how much in, in our modern fencing game you get a chance to decide the target. Unless you're fencing an absolute beginner or something. There's a massive skill disparity, and it, you're not really fencing then, are you? No, you're showing off, uh, right? Um, but you get to yeah. pick. You get to pick like the line you choose to move in on, and that'll skew the target a fair bit. I can definitely pick whether I'm going to kind of cut vertically down or horizontally across. Maybe for the the initial action. I'm not sure about if it's uh... like for yeah. the new player, you you push more across or you pull more down, sort of thing. Will change which direction your sword comes in at their head from. You can even yeah. come in at like an upward angle depending yeah. on what they give you. Um, it's partly determined by what they give you, but it, it can also be determined by how you choose to cross yeah. your hands and stuff. Yeah, certainly you can choose to do like cut in vertically behind their blade, and that's going to always land you um, like on the top of the head, pretty much. Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, an interesting little variation, I felt. Oh, actually, yeah. is there time for one more point on this one? because I want yeah, to sure. say something just yeah, sure. to maybe call forward to the next episode, I guess. Uh, this is one of the first times where we see something explicitly repeated on both sides of the body and both sides of the bind. In Danzig and Lev, uh, Danzig and Lu, you have the Duplerian is described either if they cut from their right or if they cut from their left, and you respond from the right or the left, and then you cross around, cross the arms as appropriate. And similarly, the Mutarian is also described from both sides explicitly with the full setup and the full execution of the technique on each side of the body. Well, too, um, that's because we have to to break all four openings. Potentially, yeah. Ringek actually skips the second two, though. Um, he doesn't bother with the left side. Yeah, but, that, but that's because Ringek... He says that do this to both sides. Yeah, but he doesn't tell you... He doesn't lay out in explicit detail how you do it. And yeah. this is one of the first and relatively few cases in the gloss where stuff is explicitly explained twice on both sides. Well, Ringek gets lazy like that a few other times. He doesn't describe left uh, flug or ox either. Yeah, Ringek's always lazy. Let's be let's be honest here. That's true. He doesn't give me the, the setup for almost anything either. The word you're looking for is efficient. Um, <laughs> uh, the word well, I was I looking thought, for I was, that was left, that left out the trash and just left you the gold. Yeah, Lev isn't lazy. Le Lev is is just um, what's he's 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 brevity. <laughs> He's a brevity. But the explicit right of the little ray of setup, um, is it's still an interesting little thing that, as I said, doesn't come up that often and also has a couple of cases where you're initiating cuts from your left side, uh, which is also significantly atypical and pretty much the only time that happens from a high guard anywhere in the, or a probably high guard anywhere in the gloss. 
In fact, yeah. Um, uh, Mark, when you hew to his head from above your left side, right? Yep. That's very, very rare as a setup and beginning position. Um, and on a related note, the final writer at the end of this section is uh, you may drive the two plays from all cues hereafter as you find the weak and strong of the sword. So it's, it's explicitly saying this is not just a technique of the Zornhau, maybe, or of the four openings section, maybe, but it's a technique that is belongs to the entire art. So this is this is the first indication we have of something that's transcending the specific context. And he's explicitly saying you should be using this all over the place. Yeah. And that's that's specifically right. laid out in the it's fairhouse section, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. And it's also in that Grison, and it's in it, the the, the Duplarian shows up seven or eight times. Yeah, but Mutarian mm -hmm. doesn't. And Mutarian, yeah, only in the Tsvarhau. Yeah, unless we consider um, Duplarian or otherwise to be Duplarian and Mutarian. Yeah, although, but and the the whole thing about driving these two plays from everything hereafter kind of supports your idea that it's your basic reactions here um, set for all binds. Yeah. Wine left or wine right? If shooting in the point doesn't work, I guess. Well, shooting in the point and cutting around are kind of the two other directions. They're forward and backward, pretty much. Uh, Yeah, you could say that. Wow. I have to... There's a, there's a new paradigm for fencing. <laughs> forward, Steve, backward, I'm going to diagram on this. Right. <laughs> it's, Steve's it's, the diagram yeah. guy, but we'll see it on Reddit in a week, and there'll be a giant argument about it the day after. It will happen. Yeah. Cool. Okay, I think that's the last of the things on my which I had on my little list. Yeah. So I'm done now. Ah, it helps if I unmute myself. I've been trying to wrap up <laughs> for the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Michael Smoridge, and our panel this week has been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and T Q. Thank you. <laughs>